everybody. Welcome to a French Village podcast. I am Sarah Longwell, and I am here with my best friend. Oh, wait. Oh, Whoa, no. I said it. She said it. Oh, no. JVL, eat your heart out. <laughs> you argued with Sarah about ranked choice voting, and she responded by you know, dropping you in the secret podcast, telling you she had to come here and using the BF language to describe me, uh, my triumph is complete. Yeah, I'm going to get killed for that. Uh, I just got <laughs> done recording a secret, just got done recording the secret podcast. We're back to back here uh, today. Uh, my brilliant friend, but let's just face it. You have, we've become, this is, this has been a very bonding experience. Uh, That's right. And, and so- look, if JVL wants to hang on to the best friend label, he should watch the French Village and come do the French Village podcast with us. Uh, you know, that's how best friendships are forged. Uh, I agree. And speaking of things that people do that are magnanimous, uh, you you haven't gotten this yet, but I'm pretty sure it's in the mail for you. But I, at the office yesterday, received a package. Uh, and I will tell you, sometimes I get nervous when I get packages that I don't recognize who they're from. Uh, and so I was opening it kind of carefully. Uh, and inside this package was a letter from somebody who listens to this show, uh, just talking about how much he appreciated the show. And it came with, and I have no idea where he got this. I don't know if he made them. I don't know if they sell these somewhere. But it was basically complete replicas of all of the things in the show. So it had a it had a, a, a resistance flag that is now hanging in my office, by the way. The, the flag of the, of the French resistance. It had food rations. It had personal ID cards uh, of from from the 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 time it has the replica of the pass that you use to cross the bridge um and so i don't if this guy made them himself that is uh i don't know that's an astonishing feat but maybe they actually sell maybe it's possible they sell like it was this, was this a big enough show in france that they could have made like swag for the show is yeah, that get, possible get a get a vichy id card i have no well the french resistance flags uh presumably people uh, you know, still make them, and you can buy almost any flag on on Amazon. Um, but the uh, how you make a fake Vichy ID card, I'm really not sure. Maybe we should have. Uh, so I have not. I, you're you have the impression that some of these were sent to me at Brookings. My the Brookings office is still closed. I will try to get into it next week to recover my Vichy ID card in case uh, Inspector Marchetti uh, stops me on the streets of Washington. Um, uh, But I think we should invite uh, the maker of these on the podcast um, in in order to discuss how he produced, uh, uh, you know, Sarah Longwell and Ben Wittes uh, Vichy IDs and passes um, and so if you know who you are out there, uh, if you uh, want to uh, discuss this very eccentric and awesome project that you did on the show, you know, get in touch with uh, uh, us, uh, you know, and uh, let us know. Yeah, so I would just like to just quickly say on my ID card that was ma- that was made for me, uh, it says that I am a, uh, my profession is a Chartouse de Cabaret, which I'm pretty sure is the cabaret singer, which is definitely what I would have been. Uh, <laughs> all of all of my all of my my life so far comports with that assumption about who I would have been. It has my date as October 5th, 1902, so I'm definitely dead now. Uh, there was some good stuff. It was good stuff. It was very funny. Excellent. I do not know what my profession is, uh, um, uh, because I haven't seen my cards yet, but I'm really excited we'll, we'll, about we'll it. We'll do you, yeah. We'll we'll do we'll do we'll do a whole episode uh, when when you get yours, uh, and we can we can talk about we can compare we can compare cards. Um, All right. So so episodes nine and ten, uh, we're in season three. We're at the, getting towards the end of season three, which is going to put us sort of smack in the middle uh, of this, and and it's going to raise the question again whether the bulwark will renew us for another season. 
<laughs> Will season four be coming back? Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. These things are a mystery. Uh, but the these were a couple of great, fun uh, episodes. Um, and so I want to just uh, dive in, especially, you know, I, I will say, I, I have been surprised to notice how much more I enjoy episodes with the Bolsheviks and the communists. Like, they're, the way that they fight and their arguments uh, with, the, with just the, the sincere absurdity of the rules of their party and the obligations uh, to it are um, just, uh, they're just so, f- like, fun and interesting. Uh, and so, you know, in, in episode nine, we start out right where we left off at eight, where Suzanne has shown up and there's Marcel, and he's got to answer for the fact that he did not kill her. Uh, Ben, what did you make of this scene? Uh, So I agree with you that uh, there is something, you know, charmingly uh, Byzantine about the intra-communist politics of the whole thing. I do think it's important to remember, though, that this is really only a few years after the Moscow trials, uh, the purges of the 30s, And so these, uh, uh, you know, as well as the uh, Ukrainian genocide by the by the Soviets uh, in 33, 34, the famine. Um, And so, you know, these politics are very amusing to watch. Uh, They are super, super deadly. And, you know, exactly these kinds of you know, asinine uh, things, uh, arguments are getting millions of people killed all over the Soviet Union from the, you know, mid-20s through 1953 when Stalin dies. And, um, And so, you know, it is definitely treated here as a kind of comic relief but it is, it's a very dark comedy. And, you know, the Marcells of the world uh, almost all died in, in, you know, in the gulag or were, you know, were purged at one point or another. And, this, you know, as were the Suzannes, at least in the Russian side, the French Communist Party, of course, was not, had less capability for murder because it didn't control the apparatus of the state. But the depiction of the way the the party operated here is actually interesting. So Edmund, the the bespectacled party ultimate apparatchik, ordered Suzanne killed without knowing the truth. Um, that you know she had he decided she had given up Ivan, um, uh, the the young party uh, uh, um, operative who organized the uh, the murders uh, of the, the killings of the uh, German officers um, he does this kind of by fiat because it's logical she was she had had a, a flirtation with the cop and she was involved she had some information so it was logical that she was uh, the snitch. Um, Moreover, uh, she was a socialist, really. She's not a real party member. And so there's a, uh, there's a, uh, uh, you know, a sort of suspicion of her as an outsider. Um, He decides this, assigns it to, uh, uh, assigns the killing to Marcel, who, you know, is himself quite the party apparatchik, but has a rebellious streak as well and has uh, uh, feelings for Suzanne, whom he's sleeping with. She, He then doesn't carry it out, lets her escape, partly out of the suspicion that she's innocent and partly because he has feelings for her. Um, and then, of course, when she is brought in uh, in this power struggle between them, she's revealed to be alive. The whole thing becomes a test of loyalty to the party. 
uh, lost in the conversation mostly is whether she actually did it. They're interviewing her. In the interview of her, they ask how she felt about the Nazi Soviet pact. They ask how she, you know, felt about um, uh, various tests of loyalty to the party. And the, uh, the ultimate decision, which, of course, at the end of the two episodes becomes uh, we they learn the truth of of her uh, of of how Yvonne got compromised, but um, the ultimate decision is basically that she's unreliable. That he's unreliable because he is too into women, uh, and that compromises his judgment. Uh, and that it's unclear whether she uh, uh, revealed Yvonne. But the the real issue is that, you know, both of them are regarded as sort of a little bit suspect for not following orders well enough, which is, of course, in the party, the ultimate uh, the ultimate sin. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about the dynamic here is that, you know, uh, if they kill Suzanne and Marcel, they're down like two of their best operatives. It's like it's not like it's a huge group. It's not like the Soviet, right? Or like the Soviets, where there's just teeming with socialists to be part of these things, right? Like they've got this like five people, uh, and so I think they have to. They can't be so cavalier, um, but they do like kind of lock Marcel up and Suzanne up, where they're going to have. They always did these self assessments, and now they're going to have a tribunal to decide. And there's some other guy there. Uh, who's in some way, uh, he's one of the, I don't know, regional people, uh, but he's above them. And so he's going to kind of decide. Uh, but, but Suzanne, I love her so much. She's so good in this scene where um, they, they, what do you think about the Nazi Soviet pack? And she's like, oh, it was terrific. Uh, and they're like, is that what you really think? And she's like, no, it was terrible. Are you happy? Like, I think it was. Right. So, so, so this is, but this is a perfect, right, Everybody's position in the party has to be, because to hold otherwise is somehow to implicitly criticize Stalin, that the pact was great and the and the uh, the pact was the right thing to do. And now, the, you know, the, the fact that the pact was betrayed doesn't by the Nazis uh, doesn't undermine the integrity of having done it in the first place. And nobody, of course, could actually believe that. And so Suzanne is, is as the socialist, who the socialists had no time for this bullshit, um, you know, is like, she's now in the party, so she initially says what she's supposed to say, which is, oh, it was the right thing to do. And then she's like, what are you fucking kidding? (laughs) And she represents the audience, you know, like, like she represents all of us in this. And of course, one thing is, you know, they're thinking of killing Marcel for disobedience um, or purging him and her again, because they've already ordered her dead once, while they're talking about going out and meeting the Gaullists to form, you know, the national resistance front. Um, so, you know, their their position is like a frickin' pretzel in its in its <laughs> twistedness. It's so great. Like, there's so many little things in this that, like, Edmund Edmund ordered her dead without proof uh, and told Marcel to do it. And then, like, tracked her down, dragged her in. And then, like, later, after they've had their, like, little tribunal and they've kind of been like, oh, well, you guys are... You guys are on, I don't know what they give them, double secret probation or something, but they get to, but they, but they get roles, but they're like the crap roles. But then like, she's like, well, I was on a walk with Edmund and he made a pass at me. And I'm like, you went on a walk with the guy who thought you should be executed and like who definitely thought you were dead. Like your, your, your little band there is very dysfunctional. Um, and uh, it reminds me of the Never Trumpers, you know, like the resistance, the resistance doesn't have all their stuff together. There's lots of, lots of, lots of. Different kinds of people get wrapped up in that stuff. But it actually uh, reminds me more of the Trumpers than the Never Trumpers. In, really? in, in the internecine, <laughs> like, has so-and-so been purged because he criticized the, you know, 
the Nazi-Soviet pact is not that different from, you know, are you insufficiently loyal because you uh, said that, you know, Liz Cheney, you know, behaved with integrity uh, when she, right? I mean, there's there, there's something Stalinist about the Trump world. And uh, I think the difference is we look with some affection on the communist resistance because we identify with it because they were violently resisting the Nazis, which is such a good thing to do that like it is easy to forget that you know the second or third worst people in the 20th century uh uh were the stalinists just depending on where you put mao in this totally and it's one of the reasons suzanne's so great because you know she is the she is you're right this are kind of stand in for the audience it's like well, why did you join us? And she's like, you're literally the only people doing anything about the Germans and I'll do anything to get rid of the Germans. Uh, and you're like, yeah, that is that is why you're doing this. And you think these people are totally absurd. Um, but, but one of the things that's so fun about this, or fun, fun uh, but that I just enjoy is it's like in any great movie or show where like they're putting the band together. Like those are always such fun sequences and it's happening kind of in like a slow-mo uh way here but like these were the episodes they're the hinge episodes where you go from having sort of watched um you know some of our nascent resistors like Barrio um Marie and now Marcel and Suzanne and they're all kind of coming together under this national front uh, I'm interested to hear you talk if you have any more information on kind of the history of the National Front. But like uh, that is the meeting that they have ultimately where <laughs> a bunch of things happen, not the least of which is that uh, Vernet, the, the French cop who is undercover, an undercover resistance member, comes in, recognizes Edmund and says, I know where I saw you. It was when I was staking out that Yvonne guy. And all of them <laughs> realize in that moment that it was Edmund who'd led them to Yvonne. Suzanne's absolutely innocent. And they literally walk away for five seconds and it's basically like, yeah, Marcel, you're right, you're in charge. And then they like come back to the table to keep negotiating. Right, so that is of course a critical moment for plot purposes, because it is how Marcel effectively assumes power locally. And it has an immediate consequence, which is that Edmund had refused to elevate this to a regional thing, wanted these two cells to work together, um, but not uh, the larger, uh, you know, but not to elevate it to regional level cooperation. Uh, Marcel is much more open to that and immediately comes in and said, we'd love to have a regional level meeting. Um, so a few things. One is the uh, National Front so the 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 show does a very good job of depicting how different the Gaullists are from the communists. There is huge cultural problems uh, with these people working together. Who are the Gaullists? Well, they're establishment people of society. They're school a school principal, a cop, uh, a you know a. a a businessman like Cremieux right there. These are, uh, you know, a peasant farmer like Marie, not, not a communist among them, right? They're not even that, they don't, they're not even that ideological. They're French nationalists who, many of whom have military backgrounds, although that's not depicted in the show. Remember, de Gaulle is a general. Um, and they are, the faction uh, of the uh, of the bourgeoisie and the you know what had been the radical party, which represented peasants uh, uh, and and sort of small business people, um, uh, and socialists. There was a you know sort of people like like Berio who had sort of. Like some, I don't know, Boberio is not a socialist, but he's a very sort of 
he's a free thinking um uh anti-establishment person though a school principal um who band together behind de Gaulle under under the anti-fascist uh resistance umbrella by contrast so they're like non-revolutionaries right they think of them as national nationalist resistance which is not ultra nationalist right um uh so the police station is split between Marchetti who's really into the pursuing national what he calls anti-national cases right and uh Vernet who is a you know who's a more republican um so uh, by contrast you have the the communists who are of course mostly from a different class they're mostly there are people like Marcel who are renegade um renegade uh uh bourgeoisie but they're mostly actually working class people they are internationalist you know they're they're they are taking orders from moscow um they are anti-nationalist right they do not want france free they want a worldwide wor- workers revolution and um and these people had been as recently as a few years earlier um the you know communists were uh were you know part of the uh, you know the militant part of the opposition when the gaullist types were were the establishment and so getting these people to work together was it took the nazis to get it to happen it lasted exactly as long as the nazis were in france the moment the moment the nazis left these people went back to their corners the communist party in france because it helped lead the national front became very uh uh you know there was a chance for a while it was the not the the main opposition but the chance of a you know of a communist government in france was non-trivial it was not as high as it was in italy but it was it was a real thing um and they you know they were a they were a force to be reckoned with in in french politics for many years to come as a result of of their effective performance in this episode um and so you see they come in they have certain advantages that the others don't the others are a local cell they are a national organization uh they say at one point we control the railroads um which actually matters right because they can move people and goods and leaflets around they have the capability of a national underground organization and uh by the way they are uh trained in a way that the establishment is not in underground organizing because they are only quasi legal throughout the 30s right they have a they they're engaged in all sorts of illegal activities and conspiratorial activities over a longer period of time and so you know these are when you have to organize a national resistance these are pretty effective useful skills to have yeah um well it's exciting and and interesting to watch them all kind of try to work it out and come together i did have one i have like a pedestrian question which is they call marcel paul uh, why? What did you catch when that happened? Why do they call him Paul? So that's from a very early episode um, when they all uh, they don't know his name. They call him Paul. Uh, they all have fake names. Edmund's name presumably isn't Edmund either. Um, and it's from an early episode. They all adopt. Uh, it's in that first meeting um, where when Paul first you know meets with them they they adopt these names have they been calling him that the whole time i yes. don't know there was this funny there's just like this moment recently where i was like are they calling him paul why do they keep doing that that's not his name yeah, and no, I, for no. some reason I, I think she suzanne knows his real name and uh and she calls him marcel but in the in the party his party name is paul okay uh 
All right. Well, look, we got so that's that was that's a big piece of the the catalyst of the plot. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of other things happening in this. Episode. And there's Sorry, a what? really big historical event that happens, kind of in passing in the episode, but we need to focus on for a minute because it's it conditions the entire rest of the war in France. So, we talked last week about the November Allied landing in North Africa. That happened on November eighth. 1942. Three days later, in direct response, on November 11th, 1942, the Germans occupy the southern zone, what had been known as the Free Zone. Um, and, um, and this is depicted uh, when uh, Marie and is trying to find Cremieux with her new air air. Uh, her new radio operator boyfriend, they are traipsing. Paramore, through, yeah. Yeah, they are traipsing through the forest looking for Cremieux, and they find, they hear rolling trucks and airplanes and stuff, and they go up over a ledge and look over, and they see the bridge, and there is a column of German uh, troops, uh, trucks coming into the southern zone. And this is a very important historical event because after this, there is no... Vichy now controls actually no territory at all. All of France is occupied simultaneously with this. The uh, Italians kind of uh, roll into a, a zone in in uh, in in near not too far from here, um, and so there is a the important background to everything we're going to talk about is now. All of France is occupied. There is no Vichy is now literally a puppet government everywhere. Yeah, and it's something that Vincent says specifically when he sees the radio operator, when he sees the trucks rolling through, is that Vichy is losing power, um, which they see, it, which he seems to, to think is a good thing um, in, in the way that he's talking about it. Um, and I, I, like, he seems excited uh, by the idea of when I was sort of like, but the Germans are about to occupy the whole country now. That seems bad. Um, but I guess for him, what he sees that as a, as a, as the Germans feeling pressure of some kind. Well, I, I think it's something else, but obviously it's up to a subject to interpretation. I read that as, so up until November of 1942, it is plausible to understand Vichy as, you know, hey, we lost the war. The government moves from Paris to Vichy. It has a an armistice with Germany in which the Germans are occupying northern France and this strip down to, to Spain. But there is the rest of France is unoccupied, the unoccupied zone, and the overseas territories are unoccupied. Well, now the Americans are in North Africa. So like Vichy does, like the government of France doesn't control the part of what they thought of as France that we think of as Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia. They don't control that the Americans control that they don't control, you know, the parts of uh, 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 they, they don't control the German any part of mainland France anymore because the Germans have just rolled over it. They've kind of been revealed as a nothing uh, puppet government, which is exactly what the Free French. Uh, in London, based in London, what the what the Gaullists have been saying, and so I think his point is it it pulls the scales off of everybody's eyes and shows that this government is entirely fake. It's just an arm of the German occupation. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, well, we gotta we've so much content to get through, so um, let's, let's do it. So Ra Raoul goes to get his kiss. Um, which bad uh, move, bad move. I mean, I, I guess I, I guess I am, uh, you know, uh, what are you going to do about young love? I guess Horny uh, teenagers, I mean, it's gonna like, it, yeah, I mean, it's gonna happen. I guess, 
His but mother explicitly telling him not to. Apparently, apparently it doesn't work on teenagers. I don't know. Right, right. Like, I think that's one of the most realistic things in the show. <laughs> the mother says, don't, you know, c- control your hormones, 15, 17-year-old kid. And the 15 and 17-year-old kid uh, doesn't listen to her. I think this is something the screenwriters got right here. Yeah. So... Young woman is waiting. Uh, He shows up uh, and she's being staked out because the cops know about this. They are hoping. They've bet a couple bottles of wine on whether he'll show up. Uh, He does show up. They have awkward conversation for about four seconds. They kiss a little bit. And uh, then he leaves and he's just compromised the entire French resistance uh, with this one move. Um, You know, it always happens with a kiss. Uh, Shit happens, yeah. (laughs) The moral of the story is don't kiss. That is the moral. Just, like, uh, don't kiss. So this this kicks off uh, a bunch of action because they follow Raul, and instead of going home, he goes to Cremieux's house, um, where Cremieux's clearly staying somewhere that is a little ways away, like more deep in the woods, and Raul goes there to hang out with him, which means he leads the cops right to Cremieux, who they recognize immediately, Um and uh, there's like a bunch of stuff. I'm not going to go through it all with the stakeout, but the the long and short of it is they end up bringing Krimu in uh, to the police station. And it's pr- pretty brutal in that they, they have, you know, uh, and I guess I have to back up a little bit. Another thing that happens that is important is uh, Madame Morhange is brought into Daniel's house. Uh, she just shows up. Uh, she's very sick. And because of her service at the school, Servier had put in a good word for her. And so now that she is um, mortally uh, sick, she asked to go to Daniel's house. He takes her in. But she comes bearing a couple letters, one from Rita DeWitt's mother and one from Kremu's wife, Anna. Importantly, both letters are written in July because remember, Durancy, uh, the camp they were in is a transit camp. They were only there for a few days. Um, it's not clear where Morhange has been for the last four months, um, but she does not get sent on to what they call Poland and we call Auschwitz. Um, uh, but they do... Uh, so somehow they are they write these letters they give them to her she stays behind uh eventually servier gets her out or she's let out because she's so sick unclear uh she then comes to larche's uh very ill bearing these two letters neither of which serve their intended purposes that's right. So um, she is asking to see Dick Caverne. She's trying to find him. It is unclear where she's been, although I couldn't quite tell. There's this part where she's kind of having a nightmare or or she's um, not de- delusional. She's having like delusions or or visions. And she starts talking about like, you, you have to open a window. Don't chain up the kids. You can't leave these children chained up, which means either that is something she's remembering from the school that she's having kind of a PTSD about, or she's been somewhere where that's happening. So she was also has been, and because of how sick she is, I think you sort of presume she's been somewhere not to her death, like uh, to a death camp necessarily, but somewhere very unpleasant. Right. Um, where it's not the right word, terrible. Um, but she, she she comes in and she's, uh, yeah, so she's very sick. She's got these letters, but because she's looking for Dick Verne, uh, our, our, our boy Daniel sends for Marchetti to come because he wants to say, you need to go find uh, De Caverne for her and exchange. She's got a letter from Rita DeWitt's mother from, you know, who he seems to know. They're together. Um, and uh, Marchetti being Marchetti basically is like, screw your deal. And just like bangs around the room until he finds her purse, pulls the letters out and takes them with him. Um, and... Uh, so now there are two letters. Marchetti reads the one from Rita's mother, which says that, hey, this guy is the one who put me there. He is a monster. Get out of there as fast as you can, uh, which, of course, he does not want to give to Rita. So he tears up and drops the pieces on the ground. Um, and then the second one he takes with him to the station. And when they arrest Cremieux, he uses the letter as leverage and, in fact, has one of his men forge kind of an alternate draft that says... There's a guy here 
Uh, he makes it sound like they're in Poland, so and changes the date and says, "There's a guy here who knows Marchetti, uh, and you know maybe he'll be able to get us out at some point." And so uh, Marchetti gives him the letter, and so now he's got Cremieux thinking, and he basically says, give, "Give up all the people, give up the resistance, and I can get your wife and kid out." And or he actually he's he's better than that, or more horrible than that. He says, "I don't know if I can get them out." but I have a good relationship with this fictitious French military attache in Warsaw. And the thing is dated, so it's only a few days old. So he's basically convinces Cremieux that his wife and child are still alive, which they very likely are not, uh, that they're in Warsaw, where they certainly never were. Um, so it's a, it's a vicious, vicious play and it works, sort of. Uh, Cremieux gives up Marie. It, it works completely. No, not completely. He gives up Marie. He gives up Raoul. He gives up a police officer who they're quickly able to identify as Vernet. And he protects Berio. He does protect Berio. For reasons that it are totally unclear to me, um, he... He protects Berio. Um, uh, yeah, they're totally unclear to me too. I, I actually have it in my notes uh, about the fact that uh, I was just like, but why Berio? Uh, and I, I guess, I mean, they they had become close, but like he's very close to Marie. Um, but I, but but the thing I wanted to ask you about this: so Cremieux has been a real hero, uh, and I remember, I remember this episode or these this pair of episodes maybe for a couple of reasons it i always remembered this that i was like i remember you talking about it at one point that one of the defining characteristics of Cremieux is that he seems capable of putting his personal uh interests and and what is clearly you know a deep affection for his family obviously not uh, this time below <laughs> below the needs of the country, and he's able to kind of compartmentalize that. Uh, and here, he sells just about everybody out. Um, and what did you make of just that move? Well, look, I think of all the exquisite tortures that people are subjected to in this show, uh, this is one of the worst. Um, and I cannot judge anybody who cracks under that kind of pressure. I mean, he is literally being told, I will intervene to prevent your wife and child to return to free your wife and child if and only if you give me information. And he's given very specific evidence that they're alive, which of course is fake. Um, so um, I, I can't judge anybody who cracks under those circumstances. This is not, um, uh, but he does crack under those circumstances. And he, you know, for some reason, I guess I interpreted his protecting Berio as him saying, okay, I have to give up the core, but I don't have to give up anybody on the periphery. Um, and so I have to give them just enough that they'll think that I'm giving them people, that, that I've given given them, and but I don't need to give them Berio. Um, but look, it's a, it's a horrible situation. They have a gun to the head of his you know, 11-year-old child, or at least he thinks they do. Um, uh, and, you know, Marchetti is fast past, passing Hortense as the worst. Um, uh, that's a really, like, awful, awful, awful thing to do to somebody. Yeah, I guess my interpretation of the fact that you know, episodes back, he seemed willing to be able to stomach. Uh, you know, he knew his wife was at the school, daughters, you know, like, and he was, um, 
you know, he was ready to put the resistance kind of first. And he had this kind of, not cold exactly, but but he had this kind of perspective. But then you see him, he's been alone in this house and he's like sitting by the fire. He's talking to his wife in his mind or he's talking to her out loud, but like, you know, a pretend uh, conversation. And you can just see how much it wears people down, the loneliness, the missing them. And also, I think it is probably much worse psychologically to have no idea what's happening to people than to have known. Like when he went to school, he kind of knew what was happening. The unknown is so much worse. And also the guilt of, yeah. you know, having having not, you know, gotten them out, uh, not succeeded in getting them out the first time, um, you know, now you have a second chance to do it. Um, and I, I think there's a, like, that's psychologically really difficult too. Yeah. Uh, well, Marchetti, because he is the worst, uh, leverages the fact that he has now has this whole network of people because of Crimu. Uh, and the one thing that he wants is for Servier to let him get married to Rita. Uh, which Servier uh, grants by being like, like reluctantly grants. And he was like, you're throwing away your career. And I guess you'll want me to be the witness too. And Marchetti's like, actually, if you're offering, yes, I would. Uh, and so, so this is, you can see that it's interesting too, you know, when they're on the stakeout, Marchetti does this weird thing where it's clearly the most important thing for his career. Uh, but he sees Cremieux he hears the men talking about Jews, like his other, the other cops kind of talking about Jews in this derisive way. And it just like sets him off where he runs home to Rita and says like, I, I, I tells her the truth uh, about where her mother, the truth, not really the truth, but basically says, I did talk to Servier and kind of delivers this bad news that there is no hope for her getting in touch with her mother. And like, it was interesting that he chose that moment to do it uh, because he had to like leave his stakeout. And then of course, when he comes back, they've lost everybody. Um, so he's, you know, I, I, I suppose you could say that his sense of guilt is in some way redeeming. It's what separates, it's what prevents him from being Heinrich Müller, I suppose. But it's not very redeeming. I mean, there, there's not a lot of bad things that he doesn't do. Um, and I sort of feel like his guilt is a is a kind of is a kind of vanity. Um, uh, it doesn't it doesn't help anybody. I suppose it helps Rita, um, but at the cost of killing her mother. You know, it's not it's not like there's a um, and I I I just hate him. Um, yeah. He, he's a vile, vile human being. Yeah, there's a trick. There's a trick in the way, um, like a narrative trick in the way that Marchetti is presented because he does things like he falls in love with Rita and the love is real and it causes him to behave in ways that are occasionally sort of decent until you realize that it's actually horrible selfishness, right? Like he loves Rita be, uh, like as an like an animalistic, just cosmic, I fell in love with this woman and he will literally do anything to protect that because it is in his interest um, and he does not care who gets hurt. And he also, you know, it's the kind of love that is about him because he tears up the letter from her mother. You know, he's not going to let her know that the mother is there. He's obviously not going to risk the relationship. Um, he he so, loves Rita the way the slave owner sleeps with and loves, you know, a slave on a plantation. He has complete control over her life. He's killed her mother. He's, uh, uh, he's her, she is entirely dependent on him um, uh, for her life because without him, she gets arrested and, uh, uh, and that's not love. That's, a kind of ongoing uh, rape. Yeah. Uh, however yeah. you talk about it to yourself, whatever the, you know, and I'm going to marry her and I'm going to, like, there's, you know, 
the only courageous and honorable thing about it is that he's willing to stand up to Servier over it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the only thing that's, you know, that it forces him to basically take the position with the Vichy establishment that there are circumstances in which you should treat Jews like people. Yeah. That's the only thing. There's this great exchange at one point where, uh, so Rita has had some, some bleeding, you know, she's pregnant, she's worried about potentially miscarrying. And so she says to him, I need to go see the doctor and she wants to go see Dr. Larche. And of course, uh, Marchetti doesn't want her to see Larche because uh, she he's just been there to rip off this letter from uh, Rita's mom, and so he's he's telling her no that that he tells her that Daniel doesn't really like Jews, and she says, well, doesn't he have a Jewish mistress? Uh, which I'm not quite sure how he knows about Sarah, but I guess because Marchetti does. There are no secrets um, in Villeneuve. Yeah, none. And then so Marchetti says, just because you have a Jewish mi- mistress doesn't mean you like other Jews. And she says, well, what about you? Do you like other Jews? And he says, I'm not Daniel Larche. Uh, and of course, truer words have never been spoken, but not the way that, that he means it. Um, and and I, guess I, I guess my one comment on, on this thing uh, is that it's just like, it, it sort of, to me, defies logic that Rita is just like, but you, you might, aren't you just a nice guy who loves everybody? You love Jews, right, Marchetti? Like, come on, man. Look, Rita is clever, but she's not very, I mean, she's smart, but she's not wise. And uh, she chooses not to see what he's doing to her clearly maybe because it would be hard to stay if she chose to uh, chose to look the situation in the face. Um, and it is comfortable for her, of course. But there are these situations where, um, where it gets stuffed in your face. And um, when you say, wait, doesn't he have a Jewish mistress? Uh, and... You're, the person for whom you are the Jewish mistress responds, yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, anybody can sleep with one Jew while ha- harboring uh, harboring all kinds of prejudice um, and cooperating with, you know, exterminationist Nazis uh, is one of those times when it just gets stuffed in <laughs> your face, like what your situation right. is. Um, but we should talk about how this situation plays out because she does go to Dr. Larche and Larche um, uh, kindly uh, after examining her and telling her um, she has a, uh, uh, that there's nothing to worry about with her pregnancy, kindly uh, inquires that it must have been a relief to her to get that letter from her mother which, of course, she has never heard anything about because um, that is uh, the letter that uh, he destroyed, Marchetti destroyed, to prevent her from learning that her mother uh, was, in fact, sent to Durancy and to the church, uh, to the school by Marchetti himself. And so this is where uh, they all turn into postcards and the, and the episode ends but it is um, uh, the moment that she is, okay, confronted with the fact that there is information about from her mother that he has kept from her. Yes, Uh, big cliffhanger, but okay. We've got to talk about, we've got to talk about one other massive plot point that begins with Hortense's art show. Oh, I thought you were going to say, uh, 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 um, uh, Berio and Lucien's sex life. I was not going to say that. Literally, the only reason, <laughs> but it, it is a funny scene where he goes to the the whorehouse to inquire about get, to get some pointers. Get some uh, pointers from which he seems to have learned about oral sex. He um, does. It which, seems like it seems like everyone just figured that out. Yep, France. Um, the school principals in France uh, now know about oral sex <laughs> as of this episode. It's great. Um, all over France, women are happier now. Um, 
but the only significance of this scene, other than comic relief, um, is uh, that that is how Marcel at the at the uh, brothel makes contact with with uh, th- with them. Yeah, Marcel for some reason is like sitting in the brothel. Oh, and- he follows him in. Oh, he follows him in. Yeah, I was kinda, he, it's funny. I was wondering, I was thinking about that. Like, why is he just sitting there? Um, so anyway, uh, yes. So that is how they get connected and they go form the National Front because all good politicking takes place in brothels. Um, and uh, but it, but But I do want to talk about Hortense's art show because it leads to a scene that has been burned in my brain and that I've never forgotten about. Um, Yes, my son has entered the room uh, and, and is playing distracting. playing peekaboo from behind you. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. That's, that's right. He's, at least he's not saying anything. Um, so, but the so Hortense Hortense has painted approximately eighty seven pictures of herself, uh, and uh, we talked last time about how what a perfect encapsulation this was of who she is. But she has invited people over to look at all of these pictures she has painted of herself. And all of French and German high society are there. Uh, and, uh, and I actually sort of love this kind of sequence of events because it's just such a such a torment of her on her vanity uh, where there is, da- Daniel comes over all excited. There's a man here from Italy who says your paintings remind him of, uh, well, he says Monet, but he means Manet and Mogliani. And no, there he's, you know, Italian uh, art collector and critic who buys all the paintings all for a, sh- a showing in Florence and Venice. And Hortense is super excited. And maddeningly, Danielle is excited on her behalf. He has forgotten that Hortense is the worst because her little plan of reingratiating herself to him is working. Um, and uh, uh, and yeah, and she uh, uh, leaves all excited. Uh, the, the paintings get loaded up into a truck. And then, of course, we learn... It's Mueller, 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 it's Mueller. Uh, he, he is, so, so she, she's supposed to get, go meet this guy, this Italian at a restaurant, uh, and Mueller walks in, uh, and basically just, uh, sort of humiliates her, um, by saying like, yeah, there's no Italian. And do you know how many books I had to read to discover those names of the, the painting, uh, the painters and you know, kind of does this. I actually can't remember if it's that one or in their subsequent meal where he says she she asks him. And this is this is such a great display of her vanity where she's constantly saying to these people, well, tell me, tell me for real what you think of my painting. And he says, they're ridiculous. They're not good. <laughs> and she is, she's self-aware enough to know that he is, he knows how to hurt her by, by crapping on her vanity. Uh, but she also knows he knows how to hurt her. And so um, she's very aware that that's what he's playing at. But um, but I will just say, I, just skipping to the, the he, he basically, look, he goes through this whole process to get her to have a, a real meal with him, which she does. She tells Daniel she's going. She keeps saying she doesn't want to go, but she goes. Well, she goes uh, both because she can't stay away from Miller, but also because it's she wants to get her paintings back. And he makes the paintings, return of the paintings, which he has bought uh, pretending to be an Italian or putting somebody up to pretend to be an Italian art dealer. Um, He makes it contingent on her having dinner with him. So she shows up because she wants the paintings back. Yeah, I mean... True. That is the that is the 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 stated reason. Um, there is a definite "I can't quit you" vibe going yes. on here, and it gets there's this. So this is the scene that has been seared onto my brain. Like I'll just never forget this scene uh, because it both tells you about the time, it tells you about Mueller, and it tells you about their relationship. Mueller sits her down and uh, tells her a long story. Um, after he's after he's insulted her painting and everything else, um, 
which I think, I think according to contemporary mating rituals is called negging, um, where he, <laughs> where he like, you know, tells her she's a talentless hack, uh, as a way to break her down so that his affection is more meaningful. Uh, but more importantly, he says, he tells her the story, a story of how, um, he had been, where was it that he was doing this? Okay. So this is a little piece of Holocaust history baked into the story, which is, and this is, uh, all accurate, unfortunately. So when we think of the Holocaust, we think of death camps and gas. But uh, in the Russian invasion, the German invasion of Russia, um, a huge amount of the uh, death was done, the killing was done by uh, bringing uh, people out into forests and digging graves and shooting them. And this was, you know, a million people were killed this way. Uh, and these were done by um, SS units called the Einsatzgruppen, uh, which means special groups or, you know, special assignment groups. Uh, and one of the reasons the Nazis uh, started using uh, death camps and gas was that the toll on the people who sh did these shootings was so high. And there's actually a story about, uh, which I believe is true, um, that Himmler came out to supervise one of these shootings uh, and a bit of brain uh, landed on him and he got sick. Um, and that is one of the things that provoked the, this sense that there had to be a cleaner, easier way to do this that was less taxing for the Germans than the Einsatzgruppen uh, shootings. It's one of the things that prompted the Von Say conference where this was decided. And and um, and so that, that would have been the Von Say, so we're in November 42, Vance is in January of 42. So this transition now is ongoing. Um, and uh, Miller is boasting, telling a story about his participation in one of these mass shootings. And, you know, he describes it as unpleasant work, but then he describes... Uh, make with quite some glee, actually, making this uh, uh, Hasidic man dig his own and his family's grave and, um, and you know, filling these graves up with bodies and then turning to the next group of people who are going to be shot and giving them shovels and having them dig. And he describes this person not attacking Muller with the shovel, not refusing, not, uh, but just starting to dig. And of course, the uh, implication is that this person is like Hortense, um, but he's actually describing real actions that took place in, you know, all over uh, the Soviet Union or the Eastern, the, the, the Western part of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, uh, what was traditionally the Pale of Settlement. Um, uh, I think in Kiev alone, 50,000 people were shot outside in a park outside of uh, Kiev called Babi Yar. Um, so these are real actions that he's describing. Uh, and this is what SS people were doing, you know, on, they were right behind the front lines. And as the front lines of the German army would move forward through 41 and early 42, uh, they would kill just very, very large numbers of people. And that's where the, you know, an enormous amount of the Holocaust was, was, was that. And now he's using it, as you put it, to neg uh, uh, a girl. Well, so, so I actually, I really wanted to, to, to tell the, the, the thing about the, the way that he does this, I actually, so there's the negging is about the painting, but to me, what well, is- Well, it's also about the comparison between her and a guy who can be forced to dig his own grave. 
Maybe I don't. I don't actually think that's what it is. Uh, that really? was not my. That's not my interpretation. Oh, so what's no. your interpretation? My interpretation is that Hortense is so deeply evil, and that he knows that she's so deeply evil, and he is so deeply evil. This is the thing that connects them in many ways. Is the is the vileness between the two? He tells this story, looking her in the eyes, and and he recounts it in great detail, down to the kippa the man's wearing on his hat. He has six or seven children. Yes, he describes the fact that he didn't, you know, do anything about his situation. He just dug the gra- his own grave and the grave for his family, knowing what was going to happen to him, sort of willingly. And I think, and then he finishes his story, and he says, do you want to go back to my place? I think it is the entire story, and it's why it's so seared on my brain, is a seduction mechanism Uh, and it is meant to demonstrate how powerful he is, the fact that he has broken people so deeply and so completely that they would do nothing to fight back, and that that is not just a demonstration of German power, of of the uniform he wears, and of him personally, and that he thinks this is what is going to get her heart racing. And the way that she's looking at him is that mix of horror and titillation or that or attraction or something and like does she walks out in that moment and she goes home to the safety of Daniel uh but I just read that scene differently wow I read that scene as um I am describing how I'm describing somebody I completely broke and then I hand him a shovel and he just digs and now I'm going to hand you a shovel and you're just going to dig. And the shovel is, do you want to go back to my place? And you are so broken by me, by my power, that you're going to just do it. Um, but she but, doesn't. Which she doesn't. Um, uh, and um, But maybe uh, eventually, I, I don't think Muller is quite done with her, um, you know, and... Um, so we're going to have to see in future episodes about that. But Mueller pulls off something horrible in this scene else, and it relates to my friend Sarah. So um, she goes back to the safety of Danielle, who bizarrely, given that she was just humiliated by, you know, the ex-lover who tortured her to get Danielle to give information. Um, uh, She um, curls up in his bed. And by the next morning, when Sarah comes back, Danielle's like, yeah, well, she's my wife and maybe it could work. This is the only scene so far in the entire show where somebody rolls her eyes. Sarah literally rolls her eyes at this. And I am totes with Sarah. Like, oh, like, yeah. like, like, what is going on with Danielle? Uh, so, I mean, like, this is the thing about Hortense. Hortense, this is, I mean, I don't know how to talk about how, like, she is, she is, she is France of the show. She is, she is, she is the embodiment of the evilness of what France is doing, but also it's, it's inability to, um, or it's schizophrenic way of, you know, toggling between the Germans and the Vichy and sort of complicity. Uh, and she's, and she's, she's, because she's, she's supposed to be Fran- the, the France of the show. She's beautiful like France uh, and alluring like France. And, and Daniel just can't, uh, can't quite say no to her. And honestly, I will say Sarah's performance in this and and just the human way that she's just like rolls her eyes at Hortense's ability to like suck just when he's out, she pulls him back in. Uh, you know, Sarah just like wants to mock him for this. And to the point where she doesn't even argue. She's just kind of like, yeah, okay, bro, fine. Um, but there, there is... There is on some level, I guess, you can understand. He says, he gives you the timeline in it. We're like, it's been, a, he's like, it's been a wonderful four months. You've done so much for me in the last four months. It has been a short period of time. He's been married to Hortense for a long time. Um, 
how he and she there is this scene earlier on where she's asks she's she's being so solicitous of Daniel and has been for episodes uh and and there's this scene earlier uh, where where she asks him like can you forgive me and he kind of like gets mad again and you know for her asking her that because like he's not going to forgive her for putting his brother in peril sleeping with the German soldier all of this stuff and yet you know he just can't he can't get over her I think it's insane but uh, it is I think I don't know but it is complicated when you've been I think married we should, to somebody we for should ten years. En- we should end this episode on with the following piece of marital advice that I would be interested whether you would join me in urging upon the audience. When your spouse, I'm gonna do this in a gender neutral fashion, when your spouse sleeps with a Nazi, causes your brother to be arrested by using your kid as as bait, um, uh, that's it. There's no, there's no coming back from that. I agree. I actually don't know why I'm sort of saying it's complicated because in this instance, it's actually not complicated. Yeah. I mean, like in most marriages, it's complicated in the sense that you have much deeper. You might have like you, you, you have a dalliance or whatever, and at some point, it's like it's just it's just yeah, no, but it's a dalliance with a, a sadistic Nazi, and <laughs> and she loves it. Um, yeah, and, she does. And it requires, by the way, the thing that breaks them up. It's not like morality or anything. It's literally torture. It requires torture <laughs> to break. <laughs> when your spouse does that to you, just like it's over. There's a like, don't go back for more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Sarah's uh, so nice, and Sarah's she's smart, and she's not evil, and uh, and yeah, just just leave with the maid. That's that's the moral of the story. That's your advice. Yeah. Uh, well, she. I, I will tell you, Sarah is mad enough. Uh, at Daniel that she refuses his help to get to Switzerland and she she is back on her own sort of as the episode ends and I'm always worried about Sarah so um, you know not great alright let's do it we gotta wrap it up Edith take us home see you guys nous nous aimions bien tendrement comme t'aimes tous les